Welcome to the podcast of MotorWeek, television's original automotive magazine. Here's your MotorWeek podcast host, John Davis. Welcome to MotorWeek podcast number 42. I am John Davis, and joining me in Studio C at MotorWeek World Headquarters is our road test producer and two-wheeling reporter, Brian Robinson. I didn't realize we had World Headquarters. Absolutely. Awesome. What else would you call it? Never mind. Writer, Shamit Choksi. Hello, all. And our associate producer and all-around car guy, Ben Davis. Good to be here again. Very good. And we're going to have our lightning round and MotorWeek mailbag. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later in this podcast. But first, we're going to take a look at three of the vehicles we've been testing recently at MotorWeek. And, Ben, I'm going to turn to you first. The Nissan Juke. I'll set the stage. A small, the smallest uh, crossover utility, I think that's uh, four-door or five-door anyway, that's being sold in the U.S. Tell us a little bit by, uh, more about this very unusual little crossover from Nissan. Very unusual indeed. Um, in fact, personally, I think if it was in an 80s movie as a futuristic vehicle <laughs> back then, it would have been the coolest vehicle anybody's ever seen. And, um, I mean, it's a gray area, too. You either like it or you don't like it. Now, I, come on. You know it looks like. I think it looks great. You, you do. You, <laughs> you like that little, you know, all those people that didn't like the Pontiac Aztec, you know, why, where are they? No, wait, I didn't like that, but <laughs> <laughs> I like to call this car um, tastefully sci-fi, if you will. Okay, that's a good one. When you first look at it, you don't know. You, you assume that the, um, the bulges on top of the hood are the headlights because they look like every other car's headlights but mm -hmm. in actuality those are the turn signal and running lights and your uh, headlights are actually down lower in the bumper and even down lower than that in a sci-fi looking skid plate-esque grill you have fog lights so it, it, it really is truly unique uh, when a lot of other vehicles on the road aren't as edgy unique or tastefully sci-fi is this now the juke is based on something else and it's based on a very good something else right it's versa based it's versa based. and i believe the cube is too right that's correct yeah um so it's got that going for it um on top of that you have a 1.6 turbo motor putting out 188 horsepower this is the first time this motor's been used in the u.s it's a lot of power for such a, a micro or mini ute it is uh yeah i mean it's it's a lightweight vehicle it's fun to drive and it the power is where you want it to be, I would say uh, anything over 2,000, and, and you got to hang on tight. How would you compare this to the Kia Soul? I would actually consider buying this. Well, the Soul <laughs> now, well, I, what I was looking for I'm is this, this seems like a real crossover. The Soul's just a front drive city car. This, though, you can get. You can get this all-wheel drive, too. Right. Yeah. Uh, I would say it's more uh, uh, more of a street-based all-wheel drive than, say, an off-road-based right. all-wheel drive, obviously. But uh, on the performance end of the all-wheel drive, they offer um, a torque vectoring system, which gives you uh, front-to-back torque split, as well as across the rear axle, you have side-to-side. -side. Right. So uh, it's it's there to virtually eliminate any kind of... Uh, any kind of uh, torque steer that you might incur or nibble, anything like that. I don't think anything else that small has torque vectoring. No, uh, I it's, don't believe it does. Is it as small as it looks? I mean, the thing looks in the pictures, it looks tiny. It, it, it isn't as small as it looks. No, uh, it is as small as it looks, huh. but I don't think it looks small. There's so much, there's so much flavor and style and curve going on everywhere that. Because the interior numbers are less than the Versa. 
I mean, is there that many people that were wanting a smaller crossover with less practicality than a compact car? Well, with all the range Nissan gives you in crossovers, I think they could afford to make something that uh, sacrifices a little bit of interior room for a tremendous amount of styling. But let's face it, this is a vehicle that was designed for Europe and Asia, mm-hmm. where larger utilities are ver- almost verboten. That's true. For one reason or another. So they just happen to be bringing it here because... You know, there's a more appetite for smaller vehicles, but I guess that's the big question. And let's go around the room. This is the smallest five door crossover that anyone's going to put out this year. Is there a market for it in the U.S.? It's, I mean, it slots in under the Rogue, correct? And the Rogue is yeah. yes, it's, it's, it's under, it's under the Rogue, so, and it's even uh, slightly smaller than Mini's Countryman that's about so, to come mm-hmm. out. So the question is, I mean, I don't think that I don't really think it has a segment. I don't think it has direct competitors. What I think is there are going to be things that it's cross shopped against. I mean, sure, I'm thinking yeah, Mazda like, three. I think they'll cross shop yeah. against the the Versa personally. And, and Suzuki SX4. I mean, it's yeah, SX4. It's not too, a far cry from that. Um, on the other hand, Nissan is so aggressive right now on pricing. I mean, they really have some of the best deals going, and they're gaining market share that, you know, to have such a wide range of crossovers, something for every taste, I think this little juke not only is a – it puts an exclamation mark on their efforts. And, of course, it's unusual looking. It's a lot of people unique, love that. Very, it's very unique. Love it or hate it. And so you liked it. Yeah, yeah it's filled with technology. I, I, I did like it. It's a pretty cool-looking little vehicle. Speaking of little vehicles, uh, a vehicle that we had in here with um, us for about a week, and we've actually got it back now, the Mitsubishi iMeve. Let me give you a little uh, background. This is an all-electric city car that Mitsubishi already has on sale in Japan. It's been tested extensively here by American utility companies. Uh, It's to go on sale about a year from now in the U.S., uh, under $30,000 before any tax credits. That's what Mitsubishi is hoping for. It has a stated range of about 80 to 100 miles. Uh, We had one in here during August, so so we had 95 to 100 degree days. Uh, Impressions. Let's go around the table. What did you think of going all electric? I'm going to start with Shamit, because Shamit has the longest commute and spent the most white-knuckle hours (laughs) in the car. Yeah, no, I I was definitely uh, uh, not sure as to whether this thing would get me. Well, I knew it would get me home, but I, you know, I really was watching. Uh, I was watching the gauge. Uh, it tells you how many miles you have left or kilometers. I, I turned everything off. I was being very conservative. You were sweltering. I was. I was. But by the time I got home, I still had half a charge. So, um, and that's a 35 mile commute. Now, it never said. It never said on the uh, range indicator. Even though um, you know, a hundred. C- kilometers is roughly 62 miles. We never saw anything like that. The most we saw was about 90 kilometers or about 55 miles. We never got it saw anything that would equate right. to 100 miles. That's right. That's right. So, but it but even when it was on that um, 90 kilometers after it had been charged all day. Right. You still got home and had plenty probably to yeah, come back it had to like work. Like fifty kilometers left, so yeah. I could have n- not charged it if I didn't want to, but of course I did yeah. to see how it would do on the way home, on the way back to work. I drove less conservatively, but coming back, 
had things on was I was driving with a little more a little more fervor, and it still did fine. I had plenty of charge left by the time I got back to Motor Week. Brian, any comments yeah. about the our first truly all electric motoring experience in a very long time? I'm probably the least environmentally friendly person on the staff, but I love the thing. I spent a whole weekend with it and. Uh, I drove it all around. Uh, you can, it's it's good about giving you instant updates on your mileage or your kilometers, so you can constantly monitor it. And uh, with regenerative braking, you can add a lot of miles onto that. It just depends on how you drive it. You know, there were times where I might go on a 10-mile span and only use up two miles of, mm-hmm. of energy just, just the way you drive it. So you can stretch the mileage a lot a lot longer than you think if you drive it carefully. I should point out that we had a Japanese version, so it was right-hand drive, and it and speedometer and everything was in kilometers, not miles. And it was for as tiny, it wasn't tiny. It was fairly roomy in there. It was narrow, though. It was almost uh, someone beside you in the front seat. It was almost like a bench seat. You mm-hmm. put your arm around them, but uh, it stayed solid. I had it up to like 130 kilometers an hour, and uh, speed racer. Stayed, wow, yeah, it stayed yeah. solid. That was all she would. <laughs> That's do what she would do. Yeah, so that equates fun. into uh, what? Roughly about 70? Uh, 70, about 70 miles an hour, yeah. somewhere around there. Ben, comments? Um, I spent most of my time acclimating to right-hand drive. Um, it's quirky and it's cool, but I think it's it's best suited for someone that works out of their home or something like that with, uh, with not a whole lot of extracurricular responsibilities, i.e. taking kids to uh, soccer or whatever. And basically, just has to dart in and out for groceries and that kind of thing, and you always feel has home as a home base. You I, wouldn't feel comfortable relying on it as your only car for day in day out service. I don't think I. Uh, there's no way I could do that. There's got to be a second. Car. Yeah, but you basically, when we were testing it, brought up something very important about the unexpectedness of life and how that would impact you. I would be always conscious of the. I would have certain. Um, point of no returns mapped out more or less if i had a commute uh, i would realize i get past this i can't go back i have to finish going to work for whatever reason and if i get to work and for some reason i have to turn around and go back emergency i wouldn't be able to do it yeah that's i think the the, the, the one thing that's going to hamper electric cars in general i'm talking about all electrics like this and the leaf from nissan is that um until you get that range up to something more than what would be equivalent to an eighth or a, half, a quarter of a tank of gasoline. Uh, people will be leery about depending on these for all purposes or, or even as an everyday car. If you get downtown and you've got an emergency or you got to run to the airport, you know, where there's no charging, right. what do you do? Uh, but on the other hand, uh, for people that, that have it as a second car like i could see i took it home obviously and drove it quite a bit i can see using something like the ime that as a second car you want to go into town for dinner uh you want to go grocery shopping whatever it's a great way to do it and do it as cleanly as you can possibly do it and it's awesome car. not having to buy gas it's, it's awesome not, to, <laughs> not <laughs> having to buy you gas have to remember to plug it in though you let the teenager take it out and then they forget to plug oh, it in oh no go to work the next morning <laughs> and we didn't find uh we were able to plug it into 220 here at uh, our motor week offices so it easily charged up during the day and even overnight where it took about 10 hours it was no problem on 110 on just going to sell it with like a two-hour quick charger yeah quick it's going to have a quick charger that will do like 80 percent uh, of the charging in two hours or whatever but anyway, very impressive, and I thought uh, Mitsubishi deserves a lot of credit for basically trying to beat Nissan a little bit to the publicity punch anyway. I think they did a good job.
Let's get back to something more traditional and the car that we have long felt a uh, great affinity for here at Motor Week, and that's the BMW 5 Series. This is the new 2011 5 Series, not to be confused with the 2010 5 Series GT. Uh, new 5 Series, larger, uh, looks and feels much more like a 7 Series. So the question is, is it still one of the world's premier sports sedans? You know, they, they haven't changed it enough to uh, take that title away. Uh, that's for sure. It's the sixth generation of the 5 Series. Like, and it has gotten a little bit bigger, but I didn't think it was that much bigger. It certainly didn't feel uh, any bigger driving at the track. It's still very nimble. Um, great handling. We had the uh, twin turbo, I guess 535, which is an awesome engine. I love that engine all throughout the BMW lineup. The 3-liter uh, that's below that is certainly adequate. Uh, the V8 and above that is kind of overkill, really. The 535 is definitely the best engine. And, uh, now, I'm getting confused. Did that still have the twin turbo, or is that yeah, now the yeah, new engine with the one turbo? Twin turbo V8. Yeah. Uh, that was the twin six. turbo V8. Yeah, the, the, six, the 6 is now going to, the, the new turbo 6 will be just a single turbo. Yeah, they brought that back to a single turbo. Right. Uh, putting out similar horsepower, too, but now it's uh, got crisper throttle response, and it's more efficient and... Uh, and still polluted. 300 horsepower. Yeah. I think yeah. it feels, the reason why it comes closer to the 7 is not just size, but technology. And it's just, it's loaded with uh, a lot of the same stuff that the flagship is. And, and, and that was, a, was that not a problem? I mean, did that take away, did all of that technology and flash and, and really uh, poshness of the interior, did that take away from the essence of the car? You know, a, a lot of BMW files think it did, actually, yeah. from what I've been reading. But I wonder if they've driven it, because that was exactly what I thought. I thought, this car is too cushy. But after I drove it, I, my jaw dropped. I thought, what a wonderful piece of machinery. Yeah, the ultimate test is actually driving it, and yeah. so it passes. So I, I'm, I think they pulled it off. A lot of time when manufacturers try to, to plush up a sports sedan, they ruin it. Not this case. Okay, let's go to our lightning round now. This is a uh, where we have two minutes to debate a topic, and we've got a really good one here today. Uh, when we hear Michelle ring the bell, we know the time is up, and the hook will come out and take us right out of the studio. Here it is. Uh, newly designed window stickers that the government is proposing, and they're proposing they start for the 2012 model year, which really means they'd uh, be on cars as early as uh, January of 2011. Uh, two proposals are under consideration, and there's a 60-day period going on right now for public uh, comment. One option, which is the uh, most stringent one, uh, has these labels that have a whole lot more information than we've ever had before, including uh, all sorts of environmental information about CO2 emissions and so forth. But here's the controversial aspect. They've got a big letter on them where they would grade the car or truck or whatever, A, B, C, or D, based on fuel economy. Now, there, there's another option, which would keep pretty much the same sticker we have now, but put a little bit more information on it and wouldn't be quite uh, uh, so uh, strident. So what do you think fair? What grading system is fair? What should the government do in your mind as, you know, an observer of the industry? And what do you think actually is going to happen? So we kind of got two questions here. And let's start the clock. 
I think the grading system, I'm not sure the manufacturers, how they're going to go for it, seeing, uh, seeing big letter grades on the size of their car. How would you like to have a D on the side of your car? And it would, you know, we were talking earlier before we started about how they're going to compare the vehicles, what they're going to compare them to, or are they going to compare, you know, to get a letter grade, all the compact cars with all the compact cars, or is it going to be all across the whole range of cars. I think how they figure out the grading system and is going to be very important because if they grade within certain size or weight classes, that's one thing. And my suspicion is that would be deemed fair. It just doesn't feel exact. It feels subjective. And in this day and age, I mean, people want to know this information. Information is power. So they want to know what environmentally this car is all about. But they need to be more objective about it. Give us facts, but the letter grade... It doesn't feel right. But the star, I know the star grading system for crash tests has gone over very well. I'm assuming that's what they're trying to do is something that will emulate that. I wonder if they didn't miss the boat by not doing a star system instead of going to an A, B, C, or D. It just seems like it would have been accepted more readily. But let's get, let's get back on the topic. Do you think they should do it? Do you think that's what we ought to have on the side of cars? Ben, you haven't said anything. I don't think that it would. Um, I don't think they should do it for the reason that uh, the information provided on Monroney's, as it is, I feel is conclusive enough. But people don't pay attention to it. Let's face it; they don't. I'd say for the for the bulk part, you're probably right for sure. Um, maybe just economy-minded vehicles, maybe uh, vehicles that claim to be economic. I mean, if they don't pay attention to it now, how is giving them more information going to help? I guess for the people that care, a grading system of some type would be a big help. In the end, though, is it really going, if, if, if you want the truck with a, the biggest V8 because you're going to haul big trailers or you think you are, is that going to deter you? Oh, absolutely not. So, yeah, yeah well, I mean, what's your alternative? So, so I th- th- go ahead. Well, what's happened with the five-star safety ring is pretty much everything that comes out now, you might as well not bring a car out unless you're going to get five stars. Well, I think that's so, the aim here, is yeah. that they'll force manufacturers to improve their vehicles as much as they possibly can and still meet their goals. So I guess while it's a little uncomfortable that we're putting more grades on cars than we do on almost anything else that we deal in our lives, I think in the end it might be a good idea. We'll see how it turns out. We'll keep you posted here on our, both on Motor Week and also on our uh, podcast. All right, now we're going to dive into the Motor Week mailbag. And if you've got a question you'd like answered on our podcast, please visit us at motorweek.org. And you could submit your question there. And if you've chosen, you will get a free Motor Week T-shirt. One size fits all. Here's the question. It comes from Carla, and this is a very good one, too. Carlos says, we've noticed that some cars have a fin-type antenna and believe it's because they have satellite radio. My question is, why do some cars have a very high antenna sticking up from the rear roof just over the rear window? The Prius and Mini Cooper come to mind, and they have especially high antennas. They make it difficult to park in some garages with low coverage. Older models, such as my Subaru Outback, have no exterior antenna, and the radio works just fine. Let me point out first that the fin-type antenna may be a multi-purpose antenna. It may be AM, FM, satellite, satellite radio, GPS, the whole nine yards. Tele-aid. And uh, as far as the rest of it, why do manufacturers do it? Cost. Styling. It looks cool. Mm -hmm. It looks cool. Mm -hmm. But Brian also hit on something, too, cost. Um, The windshield antennas, my understanding, they were fairly expensive. Right. 
And she's apparently got one that works well, but a lot of them don't work that well. We heard from a lot of folks when they first came out. Makes replacement glass a lot more money, too. Makes replacement glass more expensive. You know, there is is actually, I discovered, um, when I saw we were going to have this question, I did a quick look at the Internet. There is an actual antenna you can get to replace those antennas. And it looks like a shark fin, and it's a screw-on type. And uh, there's a website called visualgarage.com, and they sell the shark fin antenna that if you've got like a Prius or a Mini Cooper, you should be able to take it, you just unscrew it and put this over it, and it will look fine. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's I an it was awful cool. small garage if the uh, Prius yeah. and the Mini Cooper are <laughs> in trouble getting that, that's, that's, that's what say. came into my mind. Yeah. It's first. like the Mini Cooper, you can't drive. That's like driving into a crawl space underneath your house. Yeah. But, Carla, I hope they asked a question. It's really probably a manufacturers are looking for styling or something different, and I think a lot more manufacturers are going to the type of a- antenna you have on the window because they do. Uh, basically, they take a lot of a, an appendage off the car, uh, so you don't have to worry about car washes and a lot of other stuff. Right. But to further answer your question, um, a lot of a lot of times when you see these shark fins on top of the roof or whatever, a, more or less they're for satellite communication and um, like an OnStar kind mm-hmm. of system, if you will. And they also have a hidden radio antennas. I know in the BMWs that have the shark fins, the radio antennas are hidden across the rear fenders. And across the back bumper, I believe. So they, they more or less have the same hidden antenna that you have for your radio as well as some satellite communication. What you don't see anymore is the uh, on new cars is the old pole type antenna. Mm-hmm. Is anybody still, who's, who's got them? I think Wrangler. Wrangler <laughs> might be the last one to Jeep. A lot of the trucks do. Some of the trucks do, yeah. <laughs> no, that's true. They're going away, though, very fast. Crossover Utes, too. Well, that brings to a close our Motor Week podcast number 42. I'd like to thank our audio engineer, Jim Bigwood, who's been instrumental in getting our podcast off the ground, our podcast creator, Bob Mixter, and also our producer, who's always here with us, Michelle Parker, the lady with the bell. And we want to thank you very much for joining us. Hope you'll join us for more Motor Week podcasts in the future, and we hope you'll watch podcast i mean watch motor week listen to our podcast and watch motor week on public television stations nationwide i'm john davis for everyone at motor week thanks for listening you have been listening to the podcast of motor week television's original automotive magazine for additional information on podcasts videos and showtimes visit our website at motorweek.org And watch Motor Week, television's longest-running automotive magazine series, each week on your local PBS station.